So this morning, we're in the book of James, and we're in chapter 5. But before we get there, I'd like to just take you to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings for a few moments, because it's there that we're going to build some very important context for our time in the Word of God this morning. So to do that, I'm going to introduce you to a very, very interesting prophet, and his name was Elijah. This guy was a one-of-a-kind guy. I mean, Elijah was was something else. He was, as far as uh, the Jewish cultures and the Jewish rabbinic tradition was concerned, he was the gold standard of prophets in Israel. He was from the area or the town of Tishbe, about 8 to 10 miles east of the Jordan River in a place known as Gilead. So he wasn't what you would call a city boy. In fact, he lived far from the cities. He had no money. He really had no possessions to speak of at all. He had a mantle which would have been made from some sort of animal hair, maybe a camel or a goat or something like that. And the, the mantle would be something that he would use as an overcoat. And maybe when it was cold outside, he would also use the mantle as a, a blanket. He wore a rawhide rope which was tied around his waist. But aside from that, he really didn't have much aside from his robe which he wore every day. And I guess he didn't feel like he really needed much else. But Elijah stepped into ministry at a time when the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You remember King David, but after David's death, his son Solomon came to reign. And after Solomon had passed away, ultimately his son took over and things did not go so well. And the nation ended up splitting into two distinct regions or two distinct kingdoms. There was Judah to the south, and then to the north there was the nation known as Samaria or the kingdom of Samaria which was also referred to as Israel. You may hear it referred to that way in the Old Testament. But God called Elijah to minister to this northern kingdom of Syria or Israel at a time when this kingdom was in complete crisis. It was at about 860 years before the birth of Christ. The kingdom was ruled by a man named Ahab, and he was an incredibly wicked king. In fact, First King tells us that in God's eyes... King Ahab had done more evil than all of the kings who had ever come before him. Can you imagine that as your legacy? Ahab had at one point struck an alliance with the Phoenician king Ethbaal. And probably to seal that deal off, Ahab married Ethbaal's daughter and her name was Jezebel. Jezebel was a pretty strong woman. She was very strong-willed, and it didn't take her long to begin to dominate and control her weaker husband, Ahab. But as part of the marriage alliance, Ahab would have been required to build a temple and an altar for the vile and perverse deities of Phoenicia, and they were Baal and Asherah. They were worshipped all through Phoenicia. Jezebel was a committed follower. She was a committed follower of Baal. And Ahab was so dominated by his wicked wife that he sanctioned and instituted the worship of Baal and Asherah throughout Samaria, throughout Israel. In fact, Jezebel had in mind that she would replace the Almighty God with Baal as the nation's object of worship. I want you to think about that. Following suit, the people of the northern kingdom, Samaria, had completely turned away from God. There were prophets and there were priests of Baal and Asherah everywhere. The land was filled with these prophets of these evil gods. 
In fact, under Jezebel's influence, the royal family attempted to purge the kingdom, not only of the Almighty God and worship of the Almighty God, but also of his prophets. And it was at this time that God came to Elijah and he said, Elijah, I want you to go into ministry in the northern kingdom. Can you imagine? This is not a great time to enter the ministry if you are a servant of the Almighty God. And what was his ministry? His ministry was to go to Ahab and the wicked Jezebel at a time in which they were trying to exterminate God's prophets and to share God's rebuke and his response to their evil apostasy. There aren't very many people fresh out of Bible college who are going to sign up for that ministry. And I want you to know that the very first interaction we see between Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah occurs in 1 Kings 17, and it's just the strangest thing. Just from out of the blue, Elijah walks up to the king, and he goes right up to him, and he tells him in chapter 17, verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Imagine that being your first interaction with this man of God. He walks up to you, and he says... He says, before God, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years until I say it's going to rain. Now let me ask you this. What kind of boldness does it take from the man of God to stand in the face of the king and just declare it's not going to rain and there's going to be no dew until I say so? So wisely, Elijah started praying. He started praying right away, and the Lord told Elijah to get out of there and to go hide across the Jordan River at a place called Cherith. Now, for the next three and a half years, think about this, three and one half years, there was not a single drop of moisture. There was not a drop of rain. There was not an ounce of dew. But God used extraordinary means to give Elijah enough food and water. Elijah had everything that he needed through these three and a half years, through this time of drought. He continued to be strong in his faith. He continued to be strong in prayer. He saw God's miraculous power of provision. God ordered ravens to bring him bread and meat twice a day, as you know. Elijah prayed, and God miraculously provided for him through a widow whose flour and oil were never used up, though she made cakes for them every day. You remember that story? He prayed again, and he saw God miraculously raise that boy who had died from the dead. He died, and and Elijah prayed over him, and God raised him from the dead. God had taken care of Elijah. But for the rest of the nation, things were getting pretty bad. Food and water... We're extremely limited because of the drought. And during those three and a half years, the wicked Jezebel had continued to hunt and kill the prophets of the Almighty God. There were very few left. In fact, at one point, Elijah says, I'm the only one left. Ahab, becoming very frustrated with the drought, had sent people all over the land to find Elijah. Because it was Elijah who said, it's not going to rain until I say so. And so King Ahab sent people all over the land for three and a half years looking for this man. He wanted to catch him. And finally, one day, Elijah just shows up. And when he showed up, he again confronted the king. And he told him in 1 Kings chapter 18, he says, Now, I want you to send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel. 
and I want the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at your wife's table. And so Ahab sent out to all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So now we've got the whole nation, we've got all the prophets here at Mount Carmel. And it was there that God used Elijah to turn the tables on the wicked Jezebel. It was there that there was this big showdown between God and Baal. Baal, of course, was defeated. And as a result, Elijah captured all the prophets of Baal, the very ones who had been living with and eating with Jezebel. And you know what he did? He killed them all. Can you imagine? And after he had slaughtered all of those false prophets, he went to the top of Mount Carmel and he prayed that God would send rain. And after he prayed, do you know what happened? It rained. Ahab, in the meanwhile goes running to his wife Jezebel, and he told her what Elijah had done to all of her friends, the prophets. He went and he told her how Elijah had embarrassed them, and then how he had murdered them, he had slaughtered them, he had killed them. And Jezebel was absolutely furious. She said, I swear to God, I am going to kill him by this time tomorrow. Elijah panicked. Can you imagine? And he took off running. And do you know what he did? In chapter 19 and verse 4, he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the tree and he fell asleep. This guy is down, isn't he? He is seriously negged out. Think about this. He has absolutely nothing. He doesn't have a penny to his name. For the last three and a half years, he's been eating bird food and mooching from a widow and her son. He was hated by the most powerful man in the land. And to top it off, the king's wife just swore an oath that he would be dead in less than 24 hours. And if that's not enough for you, young people, Elijah had just run 20 miles in sandals racing against a man who was riding a horse. A race, by the way, that he won, just in case you were wondering. So at this point, Elijah, as you can imagine, was tired. He was hungry. He was physically and emotionally exhausted. He probably had blisters all over his feet, and he just wanted to check out for a while and take a nap. What's wrong with that? As you can recall, the people to whom James had written his letter faced very similar circumstances. Under the persecution that was initiated by Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 8, this group of people fearing mistreatment and even death had been forced to run away from their homes in Palestine. They'd been scattered all over the Mediterranean world. Now here they are in their new lands. Once again, they're facing persecution for being Jews. They're facing persecution for just being Christians. They were enduring trials and they were enduring mistreatment and some of them were even dying. They were being murdered. It was rough for them. They were at a very difficult time, friends. They were struggling. They were going through some very hard times. And many were quite likely on the verge of collapsing under this immense pressure. Many were ready to walk away from their faith. Many were ready to say, I've had enough. I've got nothing left in the tank. They were weak. They were weary. But James wanted to strengthen them. And he wanted to encourage them. And he wanted them to endure. Do you ever feel that way? I have to confess to you guys that sometimes I get discouraged. 
Did you know that? Sometimes I become so disappointed and so frustrated, I'll even speak the words to my wife. What am I doing? Why do I continue to do this? Why am I hanging in there? Why am I sticking with this? Friends, there are times that I'm weak, and I suspect that there are times that many of you are weak as well. Have you ever been to that point? Have you ever felt like there's just no gas left in the tank? Maybe the summer of of COVID has, has been the thing for you. Maybe it's gotten you down. I mean, maybe you've lost your job and you have limited or you have no income. Maybe out of fear for your health or maybe for the health of a loved one. Maybe you've been sequestered away for months because you're afraid to make your loved one sick. Maybe you're frustrated by the government's action or their inaction. Maybe you're worn out by the news that you see day in and day out about all the unrest, about all the division. Maybe your family is divided. Maybe your family is fighting. Maybe you are struggling with matters of health. Maybe you've fallen into sin and you've reached the point that you are considering walking away from the church. You are considering walking away from your faith entirely. Whatever the case, certainly at some point in your lives, Whatever the catalyst, maybe you found yourselves feeling like Elijah. Maybe you found yourself feeling the way that I feel sometimes. And maybe you said, I've had enough. I've served you faithfully. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. And I'm no better off than my parents or my grandparents. I'm no better off than I was five years ago or ten years ago. The world is just as bad, maybe even worse than it ever has been, I give up. I just want to take a nap and check out. So what's wrong with that? Maybe I'll go away. And if not, Elijah says, I'm ready to die anyway. Who cares? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been that far down? Are you here this morning and you're that far down right now? If so, I hope you can take some encouragement from our passage today. And I want to take you to James 5. We're going to look at the first part of verse 13, and it says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him do what? Let him pray. The word suffering here is a good translation, but I think what would be even better would be to say, is any one of you in distress? That would be a better use of that Greek word. Is anyone in distress? Are you in distress, friends? Do you have family members who are in distress? Do you have friends who are in distress? Maybe your distress is caused by the mistreatment of other people. It could be from some unfavorable circumstances in your life. Maybe it's from illness. I don't know. But whatever it is, you know that you're in a crummy spot and you know that you're suffering and you know that you're distressed and you've had enough. And what's the solution? Let Him pray. And this is that present imperative that we've seen so many times before. And what it says is, let Him be praying Don't just pray once. Be praying. Get in and get going and press in and pray continually. Be praying. Be reaching out to God. Friends, listen, not only does God know the purpose and the solution for your sufferings and your affliction, He also knows the outcome and how to help you endure it. He's the God who's able to provide comfort in all of your struggles. He cares for you. And the unfortunate truth is that when I'm really distressed, 
I don't even want to pray. Have you ever been there? Have you ever reached that point? I just don't feel like it. But isn't that the time I need it the most? I should be continually calling on God. Believers who are weak, believers who are distressed, believers who are weary should be continually, as a pattern, calling on God. Friends, do you feel distressed? Do you feel distressed in your family right now? Then start calling on Him. Have you had enough? Then you need to call on Him. Are things difficult in your life? Are you struggling to cope with the events today as they're unfolding in the world? Call on Him. Be persistent in prayer. I think sometimes we forget it, but the truth is that as believers, our default setting should be to call on God in times of distress. That should just be second nature to us, shouldn't it? On the other hand, if you're one of those who's managed to maintain a joyful and cheerful heart through the distress, take a look at the second part of verse 13. Consider yourselves blessed. And James says, do this. Is anyone cheerful? Well, let him sing praise. If you're able to maintain your joy, if you're able to maintain your cheer as you make your your way through difficulty and distress, then you need to be singing praise to God. So basically what we have here, listen closely, Basically what we have here is we have James telling us that no matter your state of mind, no matter your condition as you endure hardships and distress, we should be people of prayer. Those who are struggling in distress, call out to God for help and comfort. The others are to call out to Him in praise and admiration. The verb here to sing praise, I love it, is to, is the, is where we get our word psalm. And so what he's saying is, if you are joyful, you are to psalm. You're to exclaim how great he is. Get in his presence and worship him and declare his greatness at the top of your voice. And may I suggest to you, friends, that even if you are not filled with joy and cheer, you may want to consider doing that anyway. It's interesting to me that I can't think of anything that helps put my struggle and my distress into perspective the way that simply speaking out and declaring God's awe and wonder do. When I talk about God's greatness and His majesty and His might, it begins to make my problems look a little bit smaller. Did you know that? When I think about how great He is, when I think about His power, when I consider His eternality, my problems seem a little bit less significant. Now, bearing in mind the struggle and the distress that Elijah faced, bearing in mind the distress faced by the Christians to whom James was writing, I want to take you now to the next portion of our passage for today. And this is how James continues writing a passage which is certainly very familiar to you. This is what he says. Verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And we're going to stop right there. Verse 13 says, Is anyone distressed? Is anyone suffering? If so, he should do what? Pray. He goes on to say, Is anyone full of joy and cheer? What should he do? He should pray. Now look at this. Look at what he says here. The ESV says, Is anyone among you sick? And you see that here. But I want to take a few minutes to help develop this concept so that we have the fullest possible understanding, okay? This word sick is from the Greek verb astheneo. And I found it as I was researching, I found it used 33 different times in the New Testament. Now listen closely. 33 times this verb astheneo was used in the New Testament. Of those 33 times, 
15 of them were in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Okay? Three of them were in the New Testament epistles, and that group of 18 combined to describe people who were sick or who were ailing with physical illness. Do you see? 18 times it was used to refer to people who were sick with a physical illness. For example, it said that Lazarus was asthenes. That's the, the adjective, adjective form of asthenes. Lazarus was asthenes before he died. Do you see? So he was obviously very sick with some illness that led to his death. The same thing was said of Tabitha in Acts 9, that she was asthenes and she died from her illness. Jesus, as he walked through the streets, healed those who were austenes, who were inflicted with a diversity of diseases as he walked through the streets. So there is definitely plenty of room in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, 18 times in which this word means sick, as you and I would understand the word sick. Now, what we need to understand is that once we get beyond the book of Acts and we begin to look at the letters from Paul and James and Peter and all of the apostles, we seem to turn a page a little bit in the usage of this word asthenes. We see something else. And I want to explain that to you. I want you to take a look at Romans 14.1 to do that. It says, as for the one who is asthenes in his faith. Do you see this? As for the one who is asthenes in his faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. Boy, that verse would preach on its own, wouldn't it? So listen, Paul speaks to those who are asthenes in their faith. Do you see this? In other places, he speaks of those who are asthenes or weak in their conscience. He speaks of those who are asthenes or weaker brothers. He says, when I am asthenes, then I am strong. Is Paul saying when I'm sick, when I have the flu, then I'm strong? I don't think that's his intent. He's saying that it is at times of great distress. It is at times of great need, times of great personal weakness that he is made strong because it is at those times that the power of Christ can rest on him. It can bind him up and it can strengthen him and fortify him. So now I want us to go back to James 5. It's possible here in this verse that James is speaking to those who are physically sick. But given the context here, there's also a very strong case to be made that he's speaking to those who are in times of great distress and in times of great weakness. And he's saying, pray that the power of God may rest on them and that they may be made strong, that they may be made well. And what is it in James 5.14 that those people who are sick, those people who are weak are supposed to do? He tells them, call on the elders of the church. Proskaleo, call them forward. Call them toward you. If you're sick, if you're weak, call the elders of the church toward you. Raise your hand and say, hey, come over here. I think of some of the movies, some of the old war movies I've seen where people are in combat and they become wounded and what do they do? They yell out, medic, right? And then, and then the medic comes running to them. That's the sense here. This is what I think he has in mind. You are to call out to the elders of the church when you are in weakness. Are you with me? You are to call out to the elders of the church when you are distressed and when you are struggling. Consider that for a moment. Why would you want to do that? 
Because, friends, when you are in a place in life where you are distressed, when you are struggling, and it seems that you're under attack, and that the enemy is firing off rounds of dark and uh, of doubt and temptation and confusion at you, you're wounded, you're weak, you're laying on the battlefield, and you're desperately in need of help, you don't have the strength to do it yourself, who are you going to call on? You're going to call on somebody who is strong. Who is it in the church body? who are supposed to be the strongest? It's the elders. It's the leaders. It's the overseers. It's the pastors. It's those who are spiritually strong. They're mature. They're godly. And when you are weak, you go to the spiritually strong, those who are victorious, those who are patiently enduring. You go to those who have experienced the faithfulness of God in the trenches and in battle, those who have been distressed and seen God come through in their own lives time after time after time again. They are the ones who should be there to lift you up up. They are the ones who should be there to comfort you. You go to them when you are weak, but you can draw from their strength. So when you're distressed, pray. Go to God for help. When you're embattled and you're weak, when you are so far down that you don't have the strength to carry on, when you're so far down that maybe you don't even have the strength to pray for yourselves, raise your hand and call for the medic. Call for the elders of the church. Go to the leaders of your church and they'll pray for you. When you can't pray, they will pray on your behalf. And look what they do in James 5.14. What do they do? Well, they anoint you with oil, it says. Which is to say that they soothe you, that they strengthen you, that they give you time of refreshing, praying over you in the name of the Lord, praying on your behalf because you're too weak to do it yourself. That, my friends, is the ministry of the elder. That's the ministry of the elder. The elder, the church leader... He is the guy who you should be able to count on when times get tough to be a soothing and a refreshing influence to those in the church who are embattled. Do you see? He should be there to be an encouragement to the church body. He should be there to say to you, I've seen God handle things like this before. I've seen God handle more difficult things than this before. We'll get through this. We'll make our way through this. And He always brings that encouragement in a way that is consistent with the purpose and the will of God. That's what that means. He brings that strength and that encouragement as if He were doing it on God's behalf. He does it in a way that Christ would have done it Himself. He he ministers to the distressed as Christ would minister to the distressed. I want to speak directly this morning to the leaders, to the staff, and to the pastors of Root River Church. And I want you to hear me say that this is your ministry. Be present at times of difficulty to encourage and to pray over the distressed people in this church body. Listen to me. It's not during the easy times that they need you. It's during the difficult times that you're needed the most Be here to pray, to be a strengthening influence that you may soothe and that you may encourage the embattled members of Root River Church. So when you're weak, you go to the elders who are strong. And in verse 15 and 16, it says that you confess your sins and the elders will pray over you and God will raise you up. He'll strengthen you. He'll restore you is what that means. So why do you go to the elders for prayer? I want you to think about that. Why can't you just do that yourselves? 
Why would you go to the elders for prayer? Look at verse 16. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And it's working. It's powerful and effective. This verse as I read it. I want to say that to you again. The prayer has great power and it is working. To me, this verse makes it very clear that there are some people whose prayer is not powerful. There are some people whose prayer is not working. You see that? There are those people whose prayers are ineffective. Psalm 66.8 says this, If we cherish iniquity or sin, if we cherish iniquity or sin in our hearts, God will not hear us. Do you see that? If you cherish sin or iniquity in your heart, He will not hear you. He will not listen to you. Friends, listen. If you've got sin in your life that you love more than your family, if you've got sin in your life that you cherish more than your intimacy with God, you can be sure that no matter how much you pray, unless it's confession, He will not hear you. Your prayers are going to be ineffective. Your prayer will have no energy. It will have no power. And when you come to the point in your life where you're at the very rock bottom, when you come to the point in your life where you are at your spiritual weakest, when you have nothing left in the tank, you've tried to pray, but now it seems like you just are too weak to pray because you've got nothing left and it feels like your prayers are going nowhere. It feels like they're accomplishing absolutely nothing. You're losing the battle. You feel like everything around you is just falling apart. When you hit that stage in your life, do not run to someone who is weak and embracing sin in their own lives. Call out medic to the guy who is strong. Call out medic to the one who is spiritually strong. Call them beside you and get on your knees with that person. Confess your sins and let them intercede and pray on your behalf because their prayer is mighty, because their prayer is effective. It's filled with energy to accomplish restoration and refreshment. That's the point. The prayer of the man whose life is holy and righteous is powerful. The prayer of the man who hides sin not only deceives himself, but his prayer is ineffective. God will not listen. I want to take you now to verse 17. And this is what James writes. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James wants you to know that as great a man as Elijah was, As great the accomplishments of his ministry, he was no different than you and me. Can I just tell you that I find it encouraging when I read that Elijah went running into the wilderness to lie down underneath of a broom tree. I find it encouraging when I hear Elijah saying, I've had enough, Lord, just take my life now. I give up. I'm done. Do you know why that encourages me? Because sometimes I've been there. I'm encouraged when I see Elijah hiding in a cave because sometimes I want to lock myself away and sequester myself away and hide in a cave myself. I just want to crawl into a cave and I don't want anybody to call me and I don't want to see social media and I don't want anybody to text me. I just want to be alone. Have you ever felt like that? I have. Elijah did. In fact, maybe there are even some of you who are here today that feel like that right now. But what made Elijah unique was that he prayed powerful prayers. 
He said, I'm going to pray that it doesn't rain again until I say so. And God shut the faucet off for three and a half years. He said, I'm going to pray that God will send down this huge fireball from heaven to consume this completely waterlogged altar. And guess what? God sent fire. Elijah lived a righteous life that honored God. It doesn't mean that we never get discouraged. It doesn't mean that we never hit rock bottom or that we never make a mistake. It doesn't mean that Elijah was never afraid and completely out of strength. But he prayed powerful prayers and God restored him. God honored him. In fact, do you want to know how honored Elijah was by God? In the history of the world, there are only two people, aside from those who are living today who have never died, Elijah was one of those. God sent a whirlwind with a chariot, picked him up, and drove him to heaven. Can you imagine? He never tasted death. He tasted the torment of indescribable pressure and fear, but he prayed powerfully. Today there's absolutely no doubt that many of you feel the way that Elijah felt as he sat beneath that broom tree. I'm convinced that there are people in this room who like me, who like Elijah, have said, I've had enough, Lord. I just give up. I'm done. I'm no better than my ancestors. If you want to take me, that's fine. I'm ready to go. I quit. Can I encourage you? Don't give up. Press in. Be praying. If you're too weak to pray for yourself, raise your hand and call for a medic. And one of the elders of the church will come running to you, and he'll kneel down beside you, and he'll pray for you. He'll pray on your behalf. He'll take the oil. He'll bind you up. He'll treat you well. He'll soothe your wounds. He'll be there for you. He'll encourage you. Stay in the battle. Be persistent in battle. Be powerful in your prayer. Lift one another up. As God sent the rain in response to the prayers of a powerful, righteous man, listen to me closely, He still responds to the powerful, righteous prayers of men today. He heals. He restores, He refreshes, He strengthens, He soothes, He encourages, and He still brings spiritual water to the dry and parched hearts of the weak and the struggling believer, and He'll do that right here at Root River Church. Father, I thank You so much that You still answer prayer. I pray, God, that You would build in our hearts a greater passion, a greater hunger for prayer. I pray, Lord, that if there are those here this morning who feel like Elijah, who feel as I have felt in the past, that they've just had enough. There's nothing left in their tank. I pray, God, that you would bring to them the healing ministry of prayer from a leader right here in this church body, a righteous man who is a leader and who can pray for them. And I pray that you would empower the elders of this body to come alongside those people and to administer encouragement and soothing and comfort to them. That's my prayer. I ask God that they would pray powerfully and effectively on the behalf of those who are down and weak and that through that prayer you would move your hand to pour out water and refreshing. So I ask God that you would commit everyone right here at Root River Church to the ministry of prayer and comfort to all the others right here in this body pray that you would help us that we never get to the place where we're so weak 
that we fall away because the people of Root River Church never strengthened us in prayer. I pray that you would forgive us for prayerlessness. Make us strong, we pray. Raise up those who are wounded, those who are hurting this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.